Clarita here, and I've got a new sponsor, DistroKid. If you want to release your music into the world, DistroKid's the easiest way to get your music into all the major streaming platforms, unlimited uploads, and keep 100% of your royalties. And because you're a Design Freaks listener, you get 30% off. Go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash Design Freaks. DistroKid. Welcome to another episode of the Design Freaks podcast, where we talk music industry, art, and design, uh, record covers, graphic design, music history, design history, etc. I am Clarita, and I am your host. And this is episode 49, the album covers of Andy Warhol. thinking about Andy Warhol a lot lately. And it's probably because there's a docu-series on Netflix. (laughs) But I also kind of randomly started noticing his artwork everywhere and like mentions of him, um, seeing it on t-shirts and just kind of noticing it more. Uh, Just it's on my brain. The ubiquity of his work, uh, the, the impact on, on our society as a whole, like our culture. It's just part of our world. And then I started wondering uh, how many record covers he has designed. So on Discogs, he's credited with 96 record covers. But I'm going to talk about this in this episode. There are different sort of interpretations of what a Warhol cover is because there are collectors and there's money involved and you know, needs to be determined. So I'm going to go over those, like there's three main categories. And uh, I'm going to talk about his very first album in 1949. Wow. And then the last album he designed and notable stories between. And that uh, does include the whole production story behind Sticky Fingers by a band called the Rolling Stones. But first, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please share it with other vinyl and design freaks and leave an iTunes review and perhaps subscribe. Um, Thank you to those who have. Oh, you can also email or DM me your address and I'll send you some stickers and possibly some other things from around my apartment and maybe a cryptic note. You can find everything at designfreakspodcast.com. You can see all the imagery from my past episodes, um, and you can contact me there, hit the shop button, buy some merch. You can also find the link to pre-order the Wild World of Barney Bubbles or the Box of Bubbles. Um, This is the new third edition of Paul Gorman's book on Barney Bubbles, of course. Um, So if you don't know, I was asked to contribute an essay to this third edition, which I'm so honored to have done. So it's starting to feel real because 
today I got to see a digital PDF of the book itself and my essay and stuff laid out and a huge thank you to Seattle musician and friend, Brian Standridge. I am so glad he was the guest on my Barney Bubbles episode. Um, I quoted from that, from our conversation in my essay and it's, uh, it's there among essays by Peter Seville, uh, Billy Bragg. There's an interview with Art Chantry where he talks about Barney Bubbles. So I'm in unbelievable company. I mean, I can't even believe it. So anyway, still won't fully believe it till it's in my cold skeletal hands. Um, you can pre-order and wait with anticipation like me. You can find that at my website and in my Instagram bio at Design Freaks Podcast. And for more music-related podcasts, check out ruinousmedia.com. Now, let's talk about Andy Warhol, um, Andy Warhol's records. So this episode is not a, an attempt to be like comprehensive at all about his life. He, Andy Warhol had so many outlets for creativity. He did filmmaking, photography. He started out as an illustrator, um, obviously painting and drawing, screen printing. Can't really go over all of that, but I think the albums do a really good job of representing most of that um, and sort of most of his sensibilities as an artist. So uh, I think that will be a good introduction if you don't know about him. Um, if you don't, I highly recommend like get the memoir, get the uh, Andy Warhol Diaries. It's uh, by Pat Hackett from 1977. And that's what the uh, Netflix docuseries is based on. This uh, It's out now. It's produced by Ryan Murphy and directed by Andrew Rossi. And it's structured around that memoir. Lots of footage, though, lots of extras. Um, and then uh, basically after he was shot in 1968, he begins documenting his life and feelings. Um, so Andy Warhola Jr. was born August 6th, 1928. Wow. 1928. Um, in Pittsburgh, and he died February 22nd of 1987. So I got to live 10 years during his lifetime. And if you look at those of that lifespan, 1928 to 87, that is quite a life. He saw a lot of things change. Yeah, just very interesting. He was only 58 years old when he died. He wasn't that old, you know? You think about uh, the gray wig and all that, but anyway, he was alive during the Dust Bowl uh, in the 1930s. I looked up 1930s uh, stats. A gallon of gas was 10 cents. And adjusted for inflation, $1 in 1935 is equal to about $21 today. I don't, I'm no mathematician, but the gas thing seems off. Anyways, um, he attended Carnegie Institute of Technology. And uh, he started his artist career as a working illustrator. Let's see. So first of all, I'm going to start with the three categories so that we all know the difference um, as I continue forward. So I want to say thank you to Richard Forrest from recordart.net. Um, because I'm going to quote from his article called Andy Warhol's Record Cover Art or Covers That Bear Andy Warhol's Art. <laughs> so Richard Forrest is um, a Warhol 
album art collector. And so he kind of came up with this system of figuring out what could be considered a Warhol. After that, some specific details or specific records too. But so the first categories would be covers that he specifically designed. Duh. You know, he was commissioned, he was paid for it. And Richard says from his uh, article, he says, quote, it was relatively easy to spot designs that were obviously by him, added to which the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh had many of Warhol's original designs. So a basic collection of covers with art by Warhol based on these designs made collecting easy. However, it now appears that there are many covers that Warhol designed for which no record seems to exist in the Warhol's archives. The Vladimir Horowitz piano music of Mendelssohn and Liszt is such. The Gershwin Groff cover of Rhapsody in Blue, Grand, Grand Canyon Suite. Um, then it lists a couple of others, and these are credited to him now on Discogs. Um, so let's see. Then he says, in addition, there are seven-inch EPs, Latin rhythms, and uh, waltzes by Johann Strauss Jr., which are clearly Warhol illustrations. I want to talk about what makes it a Warhol illustration and how you would know. So he started his career as a professional illustrator um, for advertising, and his signature style uh, was recognizable. He did these blotted ink drawings. Um, it looks like a, he used a fountain pen. It's it's really unique. It's like uh, it's really splotchy. There isn't like a even line width. Um, it looks like he kind of lets the ink bleed into the paper at, at points. Um, and it's very, very cool. Um, and he created these super like whimsical illustrations. Um, in the 1950s, Andy Warhol achieved success on Madison Avenue as one of New York's most popular advertising artists. A skilled and inventive illustrator, Warhol won several Art Directors Club awards for his work on LP cover designs, Miller shoe drawings, Love the shoe drawings, by the way, and additional advertising work. Um, he also did fashion drawings that are really great. Um, he illustrated several books. And, um, you know, something I noticed looking through all this work um, is that the book drawings and the ads were a lot more delicate and had a lot more detail than the LP covers, the than the LP cover illustrations. Like the line width is so much bolder. Some of them, it even looks like uh, he used a paintbrush. Probably he knew that the work on an LP cover needed to stand out and be sort of seen from a distance perhaps. So that, yeah, that's the the first category, his, his signature illustrations or later on his signature screen printing and color blocking. So the second category of what makes it a Warhol album is covers bearing Warhol's art, which were not designed or sanctioned by him. So Richard says in the article, quote, these began to appear in Warhol's lifetime, usually on bootlegs such as the Rolling Stones emotional tattoo or the Falling Spikes screen test, falling in love with the Falling Spikes. Um, side note, I thought that Falling Spikes record was recorded at Andy Warhol's factory, but I could be wrong. Hard to believe he wouldn't have sanctioned it. But anyway, they used one of his screen printed flowers for that record. Um, there's a couple of new examples that have turned up recently, he says. I don't know what this is, but Andy Sex Gang's debut LP, Blind, has the multiple Elvises. 
And then um, Chicone Youth. Um, I love this single. Chicone Youth, which is Sonic Youth's um, Madonna band name. Um, they covered Madonna's Into the Groove, and it was their Into the Groovy slash Burning Up single, which appeared in 1985 or 86. The album art on Chicone Youth was credited to Kim Gordon. She did assemble the album cover, but she used um, one of the New York Post art. I don't even, it's impossible to talk about his art because everything is so replicated and <laughs> copied over and reused. It's um, so, so this, um, she took artwork from his headline series, which featured collaborations with Keith Haring to make a wedding gift for Madonna and Sean Penn. <laughs> um, so they replaced a New York Post image on the front page with a picture of the couple under the headline, Madonna on nude pics. So what? Huge lettering. And then Kim Gordon for the Chicone Youth record uh, changed it to this monochromatic blue. Like the Chicone Youth and uh, the other one I mentioned with the multiple Elvises, those have only recently been added to the list of Warhol covers. I don't think they were considered Warhol covers because they were simply using art or inspired by him. But in the 25 years since his death, many others have appeared either by artists who've been painted by Warhol, such as Russell Means and Simeon of the Silver, Silver Apples. Yeah, Russell Means had his portrait painted in Warhol's series of Native Americans and then later used that image. And same with Simeon. He had his portrait uh, created when he was a factory associate in 1969. And then he used it for the Fractal Flow Love Fingers 7-inch single. Okay, and now we are at the third and final category. Um, Richard Forrest says, then there is a third category of Warhol covers, those that use images made by Warhol's factory associates. So not art directed by Warhol. Men Menanga's photograph of Edie Sedgwick that the cult used on their 1986 Edie Chow Baby single. Um, the Smiths used stills from Warhol's films on many of their covers. For example, their debut album, The Smiths, and a portrait of Candy Darling on the Sheila Take a Bow single. So those are also listed as Warhol covers, even though we learned in the Marcus Wilson episode of the Design Freaks podcast that those covers were designed by Carolyn Goh and Joe Slay. So there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. So yeah, those are the three categories. And Richard says that purists, however, 
uh, stick only to the covers that Warhol actually had a hand in illustrating or designing. So he says, where do I stand? My collection of Warhol covers is based on the covers purists agree on. I do have a few of the other items too, such as Russell Means and the Cultura CDs and Silver Apples, Fractal Flow, Love Fingers single because it is awesome. And I added that. (laughs) So let me talk about his first record he ever uh, illustrated for. It's called A Program of Mexican Music by Carlos Chavez, and that's from 1949. And it's really cool. I like it a lot. It's like really lively, lime green. And Andy Warhol uh, illustrated Aztec dancers. And there's a lot more. If you look on Discogs, you can clearly see the contributions he made to album covers throughout the years. I mean, if you just look at in chronological order from the beginning and how sort of his style progressed. Clearly through the 1950s, he did a lot of these illustrations. Some of these are pretty uh, well-known, recognizable. The William Tell Overture with the apple drawing and the arrow, Count Basie and his orchestra with, it looks like watercolor. There's just a ton of them. And then you get to Thelonious Monk. And this um, is a little bit different because this was a collaboration with Reed Miles. Now, I do need to do an episode on Reed Miles because his his covers were devastatingly amazing. So he kind of changed the way people use type. He was a typography genius and just made the the type so huge and uh, at the star of the show, the star of the design. He really made things come to life, and in this. This album cover, it's simply these huge four letters, M-O-N-K, obviously for Thelonious Monk, and this was on the Prestige label, and the Reed Miles cover was issued in 1958. Well, there was also a collaboration on that with Andy Warhol and his mother, Julia Warhola. So they were responsible for the hand lettering on the record, says Thelonious Monk with Sonny Rollins and Frank Foster, Prestige 7053. So in the 50s, Miles often worked in close collaboration with Andy Warhol, who helped turn his concept designs to illustrations. And one of the most famous results of this joint effort between the two is the cover of The Congregation by Johnny Griffin, um, which has reached an iconic status in the history of jazz. It's very whimsical. It's very bright, colorful. And it's a drawing of Johnny Griffin holding a saxophone, but his head is cut off. You can see him, his smile. And his sax, he's not even playing the saxophone. He has it like, it's like he's looking up from playing and holding it away from himself. And he's wearing this really colorful, like green and blue and white kind of Hawaiian shirt. Um, so really weird perspective and uh, choice of scale there and everything. Um, and then you have the, the typesetting in the upper right-hand corner, which is pretty minimal and cool. And then I got really curious about Andy Warhol's mom. Warhol's assistant during the 50s, Nathan Gluck, which sounds like a Martin Short character, uh, recalls the making of in the book Unseen Warhol. Um, she also did a record album. So speaking of Julia, she also did a record album and she would misspell words and 
start all over again. And the writing would start small and get bigger and slant upwards. And finally, Andy told her to just do it. And he cut the whole thing apart and pasted it up so that it made some bit of sense. Um, But she got an art director's club award for it. And then the award didn't even have her name. It didn't say Julia Warhola engraved. It read Andy Warhol's mother. (laughs) So, which I'm sure delighted him. I don't know why. I think that probably delighted him. Yeah, I want to win an award that says nobody's mother. (laughs) That's what I want engraved. Um, Let's skip ahead to the 80s. So in 1980, Andy Warhol founded his own record label, Earhole Productions, uh, that released only one record, or so it is thought. It's a 12-inch single with two tracks, The Joke and Chase the Dragon by Walter Stedding and the Dragon People. Now... Walter Stedding was an interesting character. I went down so many rabbit holes uh, looking all this stuff up. I was dangerously close to just getting lost uh, a few times. So uh, Walter Stedding was a new wave violin player. And um, he was also a painting assistant at the factory. Um, He did odd jobs like mixing colors for Andy and building frames for the canvases. But he was also an avant-garde pop musician. Um, And he would perform solo with his electric violin and sometimes in these crazy costumes like as a giant bug or covered with lamps. Um, So Warhol was his manager for a few years. And um, Steading writes about how he met Warhol and about his work at the factory on his website. And I did – I see, this is where I I got into trouble where I started – I went to his website and it's all this handwritten stuff and I just – I couldn't quite read it all, so please feel free. Um, uh, Warhol drew a portrait of Walter Stedding on, uh, for the cover of the joke. And uh, from Stedding's writings, we learned that he and Warhol founded the publishing company Captain Henry Music. Um, so Stedding's 1982 album, Dancing in Heaven, was released on Animal Music, the label owned by Blondie's Chris Stein. Um, and the publisher of the songs was Captain Henry Music. Let's see. He did. He started doing gigs with Robert Fripp, Debbie Harry, Chris Stein, and uh, his cover of Hound Dog is destined to be a rock classic. Okay, so let's talk about Sticky Fingers. It is uh, either their ninth or 11th release, depending on where you are. (sighs) I don't know. Um, Okay, so I saw some different dates for the release. I'm going to go with April 1971. That makes sense, too, because it turns out Warhol and Jagger are hanging out at a party in 1969, and that's when Andy Warhol suggested the use of a real trouser zipper to Mick Jagger. Um, Of course, Mick Jagger was like, I'm not going to do a British accent, but he agreed. (laughs) And then Warhol's former manager, Paul Morrissey, was quoted in the book 100 Best Album Covers, thusly, uh, quote, Andy was sensible enough to know not to be pretentious when doing album covers. This was a realistic attempt at selling sex and naughtiness. 
Um, it was done simply and cheaply without the pretensions that seemed to go with other covers. Was it cheap? Kind of seems like putting a real zipper and a record cover wouldn't be the most cost-effective <laughs> packaging design. But anyway, um, so then it goes on to say the stark black and white close-up of a man's crotch captured the cheap, simple approach. Oh, cheaply like that. It was a cheap camera and cheap film, <laughs> said Morrissey. I have no idea what brand. So we all know what the album looks like, right? It's the the cl- black and white close-up of the crotch. Um, in the earlier edition, uh, the first edition, there was a real zipper. Later on, of course, they removed it. Um, the red rubber stamp design of the album title and band's name added to the gritty look. Artist Craig Braun was responsible for translating Warhol's design into a functional album cover. Thank you, Craig Braun. Okay, so Mick Jagger insisted that the zipper needed to work, and it had to reveal something when you pulled it down. And so Braun says, uh, the Rolling Stones knew if they put jeans and a working zipper that people were going to want to see what was back there. Um, Braun obtained a photo of Andy, Andy Warhol model. Another quick aside... His name was Joe D'Alessandro, handsomest man who ever was. I'll get more into his uh, story in just a second. So Braun, the guy who was responsible for like, he was the production designer, right? So he obtained a photo of Joe D'Alessandro in his white underwear to slip behind the zipper. Everybody thought it was Mick Jagger. Um, So the zipper was a great idea until it wasn't. That zipper ended up damaging some of the initial pressings when the albums were stacked and shipped to record stores. Wow. (laughs) Um, The zipper literally dented the vinyl inside the sleeves, pressed against it. Removing the zipper would ruin its effect. The solution was for each zipper to be manually pulled down just far enough that the tip of the zipper would no longer rub against the vinyl of any other albums in shipment. Oh boy. As Braun told Joe Cascarali of the New York Times, quote, I got this idea that maybe if the glue was dry enough, (laughs) we could have the little old ladies at the end of the assembly line pull the zipper down far enough so that the round part would hit the center disc label. Okay, I get what he's saying to have that um, the part that's damaging the records be over the center labels, okay? Why he had to bring little old ladies into it, I don't know. Anyway, it worked, and it was even better to see the zipper pulled halfway down, he says. As famous as the cover is, the artwork inside is also notable for the debut of the Rolling Stones' iconic tongue logo, designed by John Pash. So, I mean, not only did it damage the the sticky fingers vinyl, it damaged other records that it was stacked with or stored with in the record shops, I imagine. What a nightmare. So, uh, sticky fingers became a number one seller, reaching triple platinum status. Um, And it's got bangers. It's got uh, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, Wild Horses, Brown Sugar. It's got all those big hits on it. Um, it achieved several critical accolades. Uh, Rolling Stone, it's confusing to talk about Rolling Stone um, in reference to this, would rank Sticky Fingers number 64 on its list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Uh, in 2003, VH1 ranked it 
the greatest album cover of all time. Okay. Um, and then something called Ultimate Classic Rock. I think it's a, is it a website? Ranked Stinky, Stinky, Sticky Fingers as one of the most shocking covers ever. Was it shocking? I don't know. It was shocking. I looked at their list of most shocking album covers. It's like Guns N' Roses and someone should tell them about black metal. <laughs> Anyways, according to rock critic Richard Harrington, this album heralded an age of really imaginative and provocative packaging. It also introduced the greatest band logo of all time. Okay, let's settle down. Um, I, I found a lot of different takes from different places. Go figure. Um, another account saying everyone thought it was Mick Jagger's crotch. Okay, fun fact. In Spain, the cover was replaced by an image of a can of fingers. Now, it's not just a can of fingers, okay? And first of all, this image is way worse than a crotch, okay? And not only, can we not forget that the back also has his butt too? I mean, let's not forget. Okay, so this alternate image in Spain I don't know who designed this thing. I don't know what is up with it. I didn't do any. It's so upsetting to me. We're going to replace that with the most horrifying imagery of a uh, nightmare paralysis demon crawling out of a can of blood is what it looks like to do who knows what. I mean, it, there's some sort of medieval device there. It's very upsetting. I don't ever want to look at this thing again. I am going to do an Instagram probably slideshow of all these different aspects of Sticky Fingers. But anyway, Spain, I'm shocked. Um, even though D'Alessandro got some attention for the cover, he actually had a decent career underway as an actor. He first met Andy Warhol in 1967 and was immediately cast in the film Four Stars. Okay, so he plays a street hustler in the 1968 film Flesh. And he starred in the 1970 movie, Andy Warhol movie called Trash. That is an iconic movie poster. Um, he would continue to star in underground films for several more years. Um, after shooting Andy Warhol's remakes of Frankenstein and Dracula in 1974 in Europe, the actor chose not to return to the U.S. and continued to star in films in France and Italy for the rest of the 70s. How cool is he? Um, and it wasn't until the 80s till he returned to the U.S. And he was in some movies and TV. Like he played Lucky Luciano and Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club, which I've never seen. He was in John Waters' movie Cry Baby. And uh, also on TV and episodes of Miami Vice and Wise Guy. I've never heard of Wise Guy. But I'm going to have to look up this Miami Vice character because hopefully he had a blazer sans shirt underneath. Anyways. That kind of wraps up Sticky Fingers, the controversy, you know, the model behind the crotch um, and the underwear and everything and the production nightmare. And, um, you know, I think that's probably his most famous. He also did others that are really, re obviously, the Velvet Underground, duh, the banana. I didn't even have to mention that. Yeah, there's been a lot of, of parodies of that one. And it's almost so ubiquitous that I just don't even think I need to talk about it.
Um, he also did portraits of people specifically for album covers. So unlike the Simeon Cox cover for Silver Apples, um, he did an entire Aretha Franklin album uh, called Aretha. And it was done in his signature style with like the screen printed color blocking look and like squiggly lines. And what's even more remarkable is if you flip the album over, um, he does all the hand lettering in his signature cursive the same one, the same style of writing from that Thelonious Monk album he did with uh, Reed Miles. Not only that, but he even down to the the fine print, like next to the copyright symbol. So it's pretty cool um, to see all the effort he put in. And then you know later on, as the years go by, obviously he can't quite do. He was very ill. He had problems with his gallbladder. He had been shot. For God's sake, I mean. He um, ended up dying February 22nd, 1987, and um, he died in Manhattan after gallbladder surgery. They actually uh, underestimated his health problems. He he died in his sleep from an irregular heartbeat, so his heart stopped. But I also read something about water intoxication. I don't know. Um, I don't know what that is, but... Um, really sad because he could have kept living uh, and there was definitely some malpractice that went on and the family actually sued and, and got a settlement for a wrongful death. Um, it's really sad. Okay, so he did one last album before he died. It's kind of like one of those compilations where there's a million of them and it's kind of lazy. I mean, it was all female artists and it was like Bananarama, Madonna, The Go-Go's, stuff like that. And it was called MTV High Priority. It's an MTV release. Let's see. He did the drawing and then signed it, but his studio completed the design. I'm imagining he was very ill at the time. And then I looked on Discogs and there's a review and it's like, the meanest one-star Yelp review you've ever heard. It's like, somebody wrote this. It must have taken all of two minutes for that crappy squiggle. Then for his studio to basically lay three transparent colored rectangles on top is hardly a, quote, design. First of all, they're not transparent, okay? Then they say, I could do better in five minutes. We'll do it then. And then they said, if it wasn't for past glories, nobody would have given this the time of day. Who said they would have? The end result looks amateurish and like it was created by a child. Okay, you just admitted you hate children. You're a monster. Also, I kind of think that if Andy Warhol read this review, he might like it or might respond by saying thank you or something. That review uh, just really reminded me of this quote. And this is from The Philosophy of Andy Warhol. That's a book from eh, the early 70s. The childlike, gum-chewing naivete. The glamour rooted in despair. The self-admiring carelessness. The perfected otherness. The wispiness. The shadowy, voyeuristic, vaguely sinister aura. The pale, soft-spoken magical presence the skin and bones okay that's the show uh that's the 
albums of Andy Warhol. Uh, he Overall, he designed around 50 records, and he's credited uh, in some way or another with around 100. So uh, thank you for listening, and thank you, Andy Warhol. And remember, the idea is not to live forever. It is to create something that will.